Hello and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. Uh, we are back after vacations and all kinds of fun activities that I'm sure we'll get into as we go on. Uh, we've returned to discuss another victim of the 2020 COVID pandemic lockdowns. This one from a writer who's been in the news a bit lately. We're, we're timely here on Failure Peace Theater. Because uh, we're talking about David Kep's 2020 You Should Have Left, starring Kevin Bacon. Uh, I like to call it Stir of Echoes 2, but worse, somehow. Or and you may have seen such concepts in House of Leaves, where you enjoyed them more. Where they were better, <laughs> yes. So much better. Um, no, this is uh, from writer-director, uh, frequent writer, sometimes director, David Kep. A name that if you've been in uh, Hollywood genre film for the last 30 years, you know his name. Um, he is the man who wrote the screenplay for Jurassic Park, uh, Mission Impossible, at least the first one. Uh, although he did consult on some of the later ones, I think. Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, everyone's favorite. The pinnacle of the Indiana Jones series. Uh, and, and of Snake course, Eyes. <laughs> he did write Snake Eyes. <laughs> that I'm marvelous Nicolas Cage vehicle. Um, yeah, I mean, here's the thing. David Kep's writing credits are a... They're weird. A, 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 it's, it's a list of both timeless masterpieces and... <laughs> absolute garbage yeah um in pretty much equal measure like he's he's had obviously his hands um in in so many popular films that it it outweigh i mean again in hollywood you make movies if you make money that's that's how the formula works at its simplest level you can certainly continue to make movies if your movies don't make money uh like christopher nolan they still want to give him money because, you know, he's Christopher Nolan. So that can happen. But as a writer, generally your your move in the door is the is the past success. And so Kep has had tremendous success. Again, Jurassic Park, world changing, Jurassic Park 2. Ah, ah. Uh, he is the credited screenwriter for Sam Raimi's original spider-man uh which of course is, is a very it's a very wonderful film uh spider-man 2 is the superior film of that original uh, raimi trilogy but the original spider-man laid the groundwork and and had the you know the difficulty of establishing what it meant to tell a superhero origin story on screen something that we now sort of see over and over and over again so he's somewhat responsible for that i i even liked spider-man 3 so i don't Feel like I am able to give opinions about those movies because I think we, they're all perfect. My family rewatched uh, the Raimi trilogy not too long ago. I think it was in between um, the more recent Spider-Man two and three. Um, what Far From Home and then No Way Home, I guess, whatever those are. Um, because my kids had seen them when they were younger, but didn't really remember them. And you know, Spider-Man three gets a whole lot of hate that I don't think it really deserves um the problem with that movie is venom venom shouldn't be in it and you yeah. can tell um because sam raimi doesn't know what to do with venom he doesn't have any concept for what venom is and how venom functions i don't in a think that venom story. is that 
cool of a villain anymore. Um, you know, he's not. Uh, <laughs> it's very it's, like, um, I don't know. It's very eighties, nineties comic books. Like that's what yes. I think of, and it's not 100%. the most creative thing ever. No, he's he's supposed to. I mean, at the time, if you go back and look through the history of comics, a fairly bog standard approach to creating a villain for a character is to create that character's opposite. Yeah. Right. Bizarro, you know, it's like the, a really funny misinterpretation of what a foil is, but they're like, well, that just means his opposite. Just super obvious. You know, it's the most obvious. (laughs) And, and Venom at least began that way. I, I think he has become a more complex and nuanced character. Now they've kind of built out, you know, Eddie Brock has gone on and he's been in relationships. He has a kid now. He's got a son that is, has become a venom symbiote of his own. Like they, they've done more with the character to create it into something that is more long lasting than just the guy with the big teeth that doesn't like Spider-Man. But at the time when, when Spider-Man three came out, that was still sort of what venom was. And, And, and you can see that because they have like a bunch of these limited series with Venom throughout the 90s and early 2000s. They never they didn't give him an ongoing comic book until around the time Spider-Man 3 came out. And and it's because nobody knew what to do with him. Right? Like because yeah. he if he's too evil, if he's literally just murdering people wholesale, that's a hard sell as a hero character in the 90s and early 2000s certainly becoming more commonplace, but definitely not the norm. And that's kind of all they knew what to do. That's where the whole concept of the lethal protector came from, is he's the good guy willing to kill to save, right? And nobody really nailed that. And so they kept rebooting him in like six and ten issue miniseries that just kind of never went anywhere. Uh, And it wasn't really until they introduced Carnage as like a worse symbiote. So you had Venom kind of in the middle where he's like, well, I'm not as bad as that motherfucker. (laughs) Like He's the real evil one. I'm just, you know, kind of in the middle here trying to not be too terrible. And, and yeah, so, you know, not to sidebar too hard, but you know, we, we revisited it and it's not as bad as people remember. It's, it's fine. Uh, Especially if you take the Venom shit out of it, if they had ended sort of teasing Venom, like the Eddie Brock, the, the, Topher Grace, Eddie Brock was sort of like set up to acquire the black suit at the end and then become Venom in Spider-Man 4 or whatever. That probably would have been fine. But to actually have him be an additional antagonist at the end of the film that's already stuffed with good antagonists, it's just unnecessary. I agree. Um, but, anyway, but David so, Kep didn't have anything to do with that. I just wanted to point out that I like Spider-Man that. 3. I, I derailed you. I take responsibility for that. It's totally fine. I love talking about Spider-Man 3. Um, but yeah, so he's had this this varied um, this varied experience in Hollywood. And, and he's always, every couple of years, he dips back into a directing project. Uh, he's primarily a writer. He writes on big franchises. He was Steven Spielberg's go-to guy throughout the 90s and 2000s. Um, I guess that relationship is, yeah, totally. I guess that relationship has kind of fallen off now. He doesn't tend to work with Spielberg. He did do some Ron Howard, you know, Spielberg light. Um, he did do some (laughs) Ron Howard diet Spielberg, aka Ron Howard. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Ron Howard. I like your movies (laughs) a lot. Um, but he, he did do some of those, uh, God awful, um, 
Angels and Demons, Tom Hanks, uh, the, <laughs> the what is that dude's name? Dale Brown? No, not Dale Brown. That was Dan Brown. Right. Dan and it's Brown. His Thank Ro- you. Robert Langdon. <clears throat> Robert is Langdon. The, yes, the iconologist or whatever. I I don't even remember. It's he, symbologist. Uh, he, he is symbologist. the yeah. Jesus detective. Yes, is what I would like to call him. Um. So he didn't write the first one of those. The I guess what the Da Vinci Code. He didn't write that, but then he wrote the two sequels, the uh, Angels and Demons and Inferno. Uh, which Angels and Demons is fun because you get to see Paul Bettany naked uh, whipping himself oh. a lot. Uh, and oh. it's very, it's very enjoyable. I imagine Jennifer, <laughs> I imagine Jennifer Connelly watches that film and has a very different experience. Um, but uh, it's all right. Was that Paul Bettany? No, Paul Bettany was in the first one. No, it's um, Ewan McGregor whipping himself oh. in Angels and Demons. Oh, so even better. Sorry completely derailed us again i was fascinated paul bettany does do some self-harm uh, yeah in da vinci code um but i believe you and mcgregor took up the mantle of self-harm doer in angels and demons because in every oh, dan wow. brown film you need a fanatic who does self-harm who yeah who has a macguffin that propels the story forward it's and if they very, can beat you and mcgregor that's even better yeah. bonus for us all um, so he's, he's worked on those. He did, apparently he had, he's listed as co-writer on the mummy, the Tom Cruise mummy. The bad I'm, mummy. The bad one. <laughs> the very bad one. Not the good bisexual mummy. No, we all know no, him. no. Steven Summers needs to make movies again. He made some oh, bad choices. <clears throat> he made some bad choices, uh, beginning with Van Helsing, um, but I've really wanted to rewatch that actually because I, I know it's, it's bad. List. I know yeah. it's bad, but somehow that, I think I'm going to enjoy it more this time. <laughs> probably. I mean, it's it's got a lot of early 2000 CG. <clears throat> That's uh, it, it does not it does not work, but it does have Hugh Jackman in a very jaunty hat, uh, and you know we just don't get to see that very much these days. His his jaunty hat wearing percentage has dropped substantially since Van Helsing. Uh, But I imagine that's because he had been developing a mummy script at various points. And so they just had to credit him. I don't think he had anything to do with the actual script that they shot that movie with. I would be very surprised anyway. So directorially, it's been a very mixed bag. Very mixed. very mixed like technically his first film was the trigger effect which is not one that we've talked about on here for sure and we've we've never really talked we haven't really talked about it privately either but it's one that i've had in the back of my head because it's a kyle mclaughlin film uh sort of really kyle mclaughlin kind of right after uh twin peaks not right after a few years but like he was still in that like oh that's the twin peaks guy phase of his career did he ever leave that phase? I mean, not really. I, arguably, I, when he hit Desperate Housewives, that transitioned him a little bit. But I feel like a lot of phase, people but... watched that going, I think I know him from somewhere. That's <laughs> oh, the Twin, Twin Peaks. Peaks guy. It's the Twin Peaks guy. Um, and it's it's kept for his directorial stuff. Seems to really just want to do thrillers. Like That's kind of all he he does directorially. He's written all kinds of films, but as far as what he chooses to direct, 
they've almost all been thrillers. So it starts with Trigger Effect, which is a very small film. Elizabeth Shue's in it. You know, it's it's fine, but it's it's mediocre at best. Then he does Stir of Echoes. And and that's the film we're probably going to reference quite a bit as we talk about You Should Have Left. Uh, because You Should Have Left seems like an attempt to... Try again. To try again with Kevin Bacon on a, a thriller film, a supernatural thriller, and, uh, which is what that falls into. And I got to say, I love Stir of Echoes. I love it. It may be the only David Kep movie that I truly could say, this is great, you should see it. Mm-hmm. See it and, and appreciate it for what it is because it is very, it was made in, it was released in 99 and it is every bit the 2000s cusp film mm-hmm. that you would expect it to be. Um, but it has, it has Kevin Bacon being awesome because he is awesome. Yes. I, I, very little of what him. I have issue with in this film has anything to do with Kevin Bacon. He is, he uh, is great. He's good. Yeah. And it's, it's based on uh, a Richard Matheson book. Richard Matheson, great. Mm-hmm. Yep. Ileana the late Douglas. 90s. The late 90s, early 2000s were good for Richard Matheson. They really were. They really were. Um, and Ileana Douglas is in it, and I love her, mm-hmm. like, a lot. Um, you know, I don't know if, I don't know what her personal life is like. I'm always worried when I say, like, I love an actor and an actress. Somebody's going to be like, they're an asshole in real life. I'm oh, like, I'm sorry, terrible. but I love them in movies. Yes. And I just love her. The mo- And, and it's, it's a cheesy movie. It's very, but it's also got some really good scares in it. Like it's very effective. Um, it's, I this is probably telling for for my experience with film, but I believe there is in, in terms of the thriller landscape, especially when you start to do like weird supernatural shit or like unexplainable shit. Um, there is a pre seven world, and there is a post seven world. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And Stir of Echoes is firmly in the post seven world. Um, Seven was a landmine for the serial killer thriller genre that kind of blew that up, paved the way for CSI to where like your grandma is watching people be vivisected on television. Now that shit didn't happen in the nineties. Like I know we had the NYPD blue David Crusoe's ass. Like, yes, all that had happened. That was very washed. Like you go back and watch it now and it has more in common with something like Columbo than it does with anything like CSI. It's Hill Street Blues with butts. Like that's all. That's <laughs> and not all, even good butts. Not even good ones. Like freckly butts. They were butts. bad. Um, <laughs> but, but Seven opened up the floodgates for, oh, people want to be inside the minds of killers and see cool. what they did. <laughs> and and so like that's that's I mean and you can even look at some of the people who developed CSI into a show like that's what they were going for. And and it and that's fine, you know, but like well, we recently visited um one of my wife's grandparents and um her DVR, she just recently got a DVR and and her DVR is full of and I say this with love. Uh Fox News personality shows and NCIS. All of the NCIS. NCIS Normal, NCIS Hawaii, NCIS Las Vegas, NCIS. 
whatever. Like if it has NCIS in the front of it and then a, a location after it, it was being recorded on her DVR. Um, and this woman this, is in her 80s, right? And she's lovely. But here she is. You, but I love NCIS. Only the well, original one. Sure. Yeah. No, it's good. I've seen I mean, every Mark episode of that show. <laughs> um, but I mean, like, and I say that not to, to be, you know, demeaning. It's just like that is considered normal television now. Yeah. Like that's that's what and it's really extreme stuff. Totally. I mean, there are people who get blown up. There was a dude who was, you know, being dissected on a table. There were I mean, like the one the one that I think is. Is a direct like descendant of what you're talking about, though, is Criminal Minds. Yes. Criminal Minds is the pinnacle of that genre. That show was so fucked up, it, it made Manti Patinkin leave. <laughs> yeah, he's like, we like, gotta stop doing this. Like, we're not even considering that these people are, like, you know, human beings with emotional <laughs> lives. <laughs> They're just monsters. Like, that show, I tried I tried with that show, because mm-hmm. I love making yeah, fun of a procedural cop drama. I, lo- I just love it. It's... I honestly think I think the last episode I watched was the first of a two-parter where Will Wheaton played a serial killer. I remember that, and I think I watched it, and I was like, "Okay, this this, had enough." This show may not have jumped the shark for everyone, but this is where it jumps the shark (laughs) for me. I can't do this, and because he was like an agoraphobe or something, but somehow still got out of the house to murder people. Yeah, I can't. I can't. Um, but so, okay. But I say all that to say that David Kep in that post seven world capitalized on both the visual style and the the sort of storytelling qualities that made seven work, and then he applied that to this relatively low budget supernatural sixth sense style thriller. Yeah. And and it worked. I would say of all of his directorial efforts, it's probably the one that works the best. Um, He followed it up with a film that was super hyped because um, Johnny Depp had just had pirates explode. Um, But that was Secret Window. Corn. Uh, Which was a (laughs) which was a Stephen King adaptation, which also (laughs) gave it got it. You know, people got excited. Uh, but Secret Window was bad. Uh, it was a terrible film. And uh, just very, I, it was trying the to secret be sneaky. Was corn. Yes, the secret was always in the <laughs> garden and it had to do with corn. Uh, it was just, it was very, it was trying to tell a very complex and layered story about a guy not seeing the world as it is in a much too straightforward way. And most of it kind of fell apart for me. What it really did was show us a man who wears cardigans and bathrobes. And he, and you know, he wore them okay. It is Johnny Depp for early 2000s. It's Johnny Depp Depp looking the most Johnny Depp that he ever has. It's kind of, it became the default Johnny Depp look until he got to this like hair slicked back, finely cut goatee phase, which he's in now. I don't even know if he's in that anymore. He kind of just looks maybe not. I don't bloated. He's very puffy, uh, which I I have no room to talk. I am also very puffy. We're all a little Um, puffy. Yeah. I mean, post pandemic, it's just been puffy all the way down. (laughs) We're all just puff pastries now (laughs) (laughs) because we eat a lot of puff pastries. Uh, So secret window comes out. It's not a huge success. It did. Okay. Um, 
and then he did, and this was the probably the biggest surprise for me. He did that movie Ghost Town with Ricky Gervais, uh, where, and if you don't remember it, it's fine because it wasn't very good. But it has Ricky Gervais, Gervais in it, so I just avoid it. Like, <laughs> he's cannot he, take him. He's a dentist who can see ghosts, and that's uh-huh. pretty much the whole thing. Uh, so he made that, and that didn't do very well either. Uh, barely made its box office back. Then he did Premium Rush, if you remember that one. The with bike the, movie. With JGL uh, on the bike. Um, again, an action thriller about a police officer who wants to get a thing from a bike messenger. <laughs> very exciting. Uh, yeah. And then, before you should have left, his last effort was in 2015, and that was... Mordecai the <laughs> the comedy film also with Johnny Depp speaking of he, Johnny Depp <laughs> yeah that's that is that film might be the most Johnny Depp that we'll ever get in a film uh and it's it also was not very good uh obviously and so then we and McGregor was in it uh he was Paul, uh, Paul so Bettany was in it too. G- Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, Paul Bettany. Um, that film was a disaster. Like a, it a just huge sucked so bad, and I, I I don't even want to talk about it because it's terrible. Uh, so then we get "You Should Have Left." Five years after Mordecai, he he went back to the the writing salt mines, <laughs> made Inferno, which was a success. It it you know doubled plus its budget. And then he made The Mummy, which, again, I think was more just a credit they had to give him because he had worked on a script that they obviously took and built from for whatever they were trying to do in that movie. Um, so I don't think he was actively involved in it, but I'm sure he got a check. And at the end of the day, that's what matters. And then he goes off and he makes You Should Have Left. Um, and You Should Have Left is... Well, it's a Jason Bloom movie, which should tell you everything yeah. you need to know. Uh, super low budget. Super fast production. Obviously intended to throw it into theaters with Kevin Bacon's face plastered over every poster. Get enough people to go see it to make your budget back and, and call it a day, right? The the standard Bloomhouse production model that we know oh so well. But this one was pandemified. And so it went straight to VOD. No... uh no financials were ever released about how much it how much it sold or how little it sold, uh, but we do know that its budget was approximately four million dollars, which probably most of that went to Bacon himself, I would think, or at Good. least a decent chunk of it. I would love to spend four million dollars on Bacon. Oh man, what a different world it would be. Uh, and so you should have left. Is is the most recent Cap directorial effort? I don't think he has anything currently announced on the slate to direct. Uh, I think he's got some writing projects coming down the pipeline, but, you know, obviously with the writer strike and, and several other things going on, who knows when we'll see any of that stuff. But I do, I, I'm glad this was your suggestion. You brought this one up. I had seen it. I remembered when it came out, sort of seeing it hove across my, my VOD um, channels on uh, on our streaming device of choice. And, and I remember being like, huh, I wonder what that is. And then immediately forgot about it and didn't you know, remember that it existed. <laughs> a similar thing happened to me, except I watched the movie 
and then I forgot that I saw the movie. Yeah. And then pulled it up again, and I was like, this looks like it could be a good time. And I started watching it, and I was like, wait. Oh. really familiar. <laughs> uh, and I was, I was embarrassingly far into the movie before I realized I have already seen this movie. Um, yeah, I can see that. Which I think that sums up my experience maybe a bit prematurely in the conversation it, it it's not it's not super memorable um well, and, yeah and i think part of it is that again kept seems to be drawing from some pretty common wells for this some that you may know and some that have heavily influenced many many other things yeah and um, so that's, well, this is a bad reference, but I'll use it anyway. The reason why John Carter of Mars, the very famous Disney flop starring Taylor Kitsch from 2012, the reason why that movie flopped so hard is because John Carter has been ripped off by literally dozens of different filmmakers and artists for the last hundred years. Mm. To the point that when you actually see the original thing, you go like, I've seen this before. And it's like, yes, yes, you have. <laughs> right. Yeah. You saw it in Star Wars Attack of the Clones. You saw it in Dune. You saw it in everything that has to do with desert planets because they all ripped off John Carter of Mars because everybody read those Edgar Rice Burroughs novels, uh, Burroughs novels yeah. back in the day. Like they were foundational to the development of the science fiction fantasy genre. And and so influential that they've cropped up everywhere. And, you know, that's that happens. And so You Should Have Left is also cobbled together from some highly influential properties. Um, again, Stir of Echoes, you know, Kep is kind of copying from himself to a certain extent. Uh, like he's he's enacting his own playbook. Uh, I mean, he picked Kevin Bacon to star in it again. Um, it's, it's another film that is about a fraught family and a guy suffering from visions that he can't explain uh, or experiences that he can't explain. If you want to you know, loosen it up to that, uh, there's some, there's some similarities here, right? And, um, the biggest one and the one that I, I, I'm most excited to talk with you about, cause it's been a long time is that this film and in the novella upon which it was based, uh, which is a very different thing. Uh, I didn't read the entire thing. I did grab a copy of it and sort of skim through just because I was curious. Um, the novella is about a screenwriter, yeah. right? Like the novella is about a guy trying to write a movie. And so they go to this Airbnb or something out in the country and everything gets weird and funky. This movie does not take that approach at all. Although I guess it is tangentially tied to the film industry. It's very um, movie-fied. It takes like strings from the book and then makes them whatever this is. Right, which, I mean, Kep has been a pretty, I mean, most of his work, even his originals, uh, the stuff that he's directed and wrote, they've all been adaptations. Like, Kep doesn't generally work from original material uh, of his own. He's adapting from other stuff. And, and so, you know, not necessarily something unexpected, but, you know, there are certain aspects of this I'm like, well, why even keep, you know, like why even say that it's it's you know from this because you're changing so much, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, but the main the main influence probably on the original uh, writer of the novella and on this film is House of Leaves by Mark Z 
Nobody wants to say that this inspires anything. No, because nobody wants wants to be that college sophomore. Yeah, if you know anything about this book, it is incredibly inspirational. It is foundational literature for weirdos and weird fiction and modern horror in many ways. Um, Totally. But nobody wants to say that it is an inspiration because then I, I don't pay? know. It becomes I think like you'd have it, to pay. <laughs> well, I think it comes with a, a feeling of of your work being cliche attached to it. Sure. Yeah. Oh, totally. Because it has, I mean, a, a lot of stuff, a lot of media, video games, movies, other books have been inspired by House of Leaves to the point where it does kind of come with a cliche attached. Um, Like, specifically, I'm thinking about that incredible, wonderful, I played it, the Doomwad My House. Yes, which did you see? fantastic. Daniel Lewski actually posted it himself the other day. I actually did follow him, and he, he posted a link to it saying that this was a I've wonderful... S- I certainly yeah. hope so. I mean, it, and that that would be incredibly flattering to me if I had written that book. I'd be like, "Wow, this, this is amazing," because um, it's you know not it's it's inspired by House of Leaves, yes, but it's also like a technical achievement with Doom making Doom yes. mods. It's it's an incredible, um, yeah, just the way that it manipulates space. It's I mean, it's amazing. Stuff that even even modern engines, you would struggle to find ways to do some of the things that this this crazy doom wad is doing yeah but at the same time <clears throat> there was that moment where people started connecting it to house of leaves and they're like oh come on dude now it's not as cool anymore and it's i don't know it's it's something about just the saturation of that book i mean i i bought it and i read it when i was a freshman in college mm-hmm. it's just something about it um, but you yeah, can I- see its fingerprints all over this I guess I guess we should <clears throat> we should cover it briefly. Um, so, it's a book. It, yes, it is. <laughs> it is a book that you can buy at bookstores. Which this is not a book podcast, so we don't need to necessarily spend too much time on it. Um, but this came out in in uh, it was like March of two thousand. So I would have been a junior in college when this came out. I bought a copy of it the next year because it blew up pretty quick it was a bit of a slow burn at first but then got big um because it's a what what is the technical term is it a pseudepigraph is that what it is where you where it's attributed to a fake author um because the okay so house of leaves in and of itself is it's it purports to be a found manuscript written by a guy named johnny truant who is a, he's trying to be a tattoo artist or something in like Los Angeles. And he finds a half finished book by a guy named Zampano, Zampano, who is writing a book about a series of documentary films by a journalist named Will Navidson. (laughs) That's referred to as the Navidson record. 
This is so confusing. It's so it's so <laughs> nuts, dude. Like this is why like grad school lit guys go nuts for this thing. You go in it's... one of two directions. You either go in the infinite jest <laughs> direction or you go in the right. house of leaves direction. Yeah, there are no other options. That's right. Infinite jest house of leaves. Which one do you choose? <laughs> Fight, right? <laughs> Street Fighter stuff. Um so so House of Leaves is this like crazy multi-layered text. That's a text within a text within a text. That's all about the Navidson record, the the film that all of this is supposed to be based on. That the the guy who writes the book, Johnny Truett, never sees, as far as I know. I think he maybe it, he hints it. Perhaps he discovers some of the tapes and gets to watch them later because like a lot of his story is expressed through footnotes in in the book. Um, but ultimately, the Navidson record is about this guy who they find. A, a room in their house that shouldn't be there, right? Like a space within their home that shouldn't exist. And they go in to explore it and then sort of descend into chaos, madness, you know, what have you. All the things that you would expect. Right. I mean, like, because it's a world that's impossible, right? It's yeah. an impossible space inside a world that shouldn't exist. And, and, and that concept enchanted so many people. Yeah, it's 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 brilliant. Uh, to my knowledge, I I know Daniel Lewski has written some other stuff. He wrote a sequel to House of Leaves, but right, not really like a sequel. Whale it was like a continuation, stone. something like that. Whale, yeah, whale, whale. I don't know. I didn't read it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because House of Leaves was bombastic and and out of this world to the point that how are you going to follow it, that up? How are you going to follow it up? And, and he really hasn't tried. Right. And he hasn't needed to. I guess the sales are good. It's his it's his uh <laughs> um god damn it. JD Salinger. Catcher in the Rye. Catcher in the Rye, thank you. Fuck. My brain. <laughs> um I've I've had so much caffeine this morning, I should be better than this. <laughs> um but it's it's his catcher in the rye, right? It's just the sales are perpetual and never ending, and he continues to influence other ones. Another one I would throw out there that does similar things, but with language, uh, is the Raw Shark Texts by Stephen mm. Hall. Um, not as popular, mostly forgotten at this point, but a a brilliant book that is very much takes a lot of what House of Leaves talks about in terms of space and form and reality and its effects on the mind, and talks and and does a similar thing with linguistics um, and language and how language can, can but it's not about finding world. a secret room in it your house. It is not about finding a secret room in your house, but uh, the raw shark text is another one I'll throw out there. It came out around the same time, but so um, house of leaves and its exploration of, of spaces within spaces within spaces is at the heart of what's happening in this film. But very famously, even though I'm relatively certain House of Leaves has been perpetually optioned for a film since it was released, we have seen nothing. Because here's the thing. Showing that in film is hard. <laughs> it is very difficult. And um, I think this film backs up. Now, granted, this is a low, this is a low budget film. So, I mean, it's not like they have unlimited options. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a concept. It's a idea that like many things in advanced fiction, uh, in, in meta fiction, these are things that are hard to represent in film. 
probably the closest uh, we're going to get is a Doom 2 wad called My House. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, true. I think that's, I think that's true. the movie right there. Because part of it is the experience of exploring and yeah. discovering, right? Which in a novel, you can curate those things where in a film, you know, there are certain rules that you need to, to accommodate so as not to completely, you know, disorient the viewer. When there's a, uh, there's a separation, there's a lens. You know, you're you're being right. shown what a filmmaker wants you to see, whereas in a game, you're finding it yourself. And yeah. somehow books manage to fudge that concept where it feels like you're exploring and you are discovering something while you're reading. It's the magic of books. Yes. Uh, it, to, to, to be honest, the only person that I think could probably have pulled off making House of Leaves was one of the people who inspired it, and that would be Andre Tarkovsky, like Stalker. <laughs> Right. Solaris. Right. Like yeah. he's one of the only filmmakers that probably could have made that movie or, or could have oh, made the movie of House of Leaves. Oh, God, it would be depressing as shit. <laughs> um, but like he was, you know, like everybody's seen the Tarkovsky, uh, you know, the guy with the candle going across the pool, you know. Oh, God, I can't remember what movie that's from now. <sighs> like Tarkovsky could pull that that stuff off was it nostalgia was that the film yes nostalgia um and there's this there's this very famous sequence in that film where this guy has like a lit candle and he's trying to move it across a space by like protecting it with his jacket and everything's just like it's just it's both slow and mind-numbing but beautiful and and stark and sad it's like all of these things all at once it's 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 film <laughs> like that's what film can do. Uh, and, and so like he would he could have done it. But I don't know if anybody in the current film landscape could make House of Leaves into a movie. And, and they should um, not try. And they shouldn't try. And unfortunately, you should leave uh, or you should have left. Excuse me. Uh, <laughs> whatever is, the fuck it's called. <laughs> whatever it's called uh, is evidence of that, because while it introduces that concept of spaces within spaces and reality not adding up in the way that we think it should it doesn't really do anything with it because it can't you can't push it, that yeah. concept far enough to make it, it, it truly scary it's it, exactly and this film while it, it was certainly marketed as a horror film there's nothing scary about this movie <laughs> like not yeah. at all uh it's perhaps a bit unsettling at times uh but it's it's very minimal uh so again so house of leaves is in the mix here and uh, when you go for the king, you better come big. And this movie doesn't come big. No. Um, but regardless, let's let's talk about this film. So again, adaptation of a novella by a German author named Daniel Kelman called You Should Have Left about a screenwriter, weird Airbnb. Maybe he did bad things. Maybe he didn't. But the, the family dynamic of it's him and his wife and a young daughter, all of that's there. Uh, but in this one, we have Kevin Bacon, Amanda Seyfried, and uh, I don't know, some kid. doesn't matter. Uh, she's terrible. Uh, and in this one, he's what? He's like a banker? Some kind of sort of finance bro? I, I, I think uh, something like that. But he's, he's very rich. Yeah. He's, he's, he's rich. A retired money man. Yeah. Retired rich dude who doesn't have a lot going on, apparently. And uh, Amanda Seyfried is an up-and-coming actress. They seem to be making sort of a faint, and, and maybe this was because it was also Universal Pictures, but they, it seems like she's in the Fast and Furious movie or something. <laughs> um, 
I forget what they call it in the film, but she's in some, it's, it's like, you know, angry and articulate or something. I don't, I don't know. It was some kind of fast and furious knockoff thing. Um, but she's an actress, relatively successful. They're in a relationship and, and there's immediate hints that something is wrong with Kevin Bacon, right? You know, we, we need to talk about Kevin Bacon <laughs> kind of situation. And, and she's either oblivious to it or just doesn't really care. And, you know, but people know him from things. So there's immediately a little bit of mystery there. Not enough payoff for as much time as they spend on it, I think. But you know, whatever. Um, and then they have a kid together, I think. I think it's their kid. Pretty sure. Yes. Um, and they have a small, small daughter. So she's going to be ma- making some sort of big... She's going to be starting some sort of big project. She's going to be away for a couple of months. So they want to have like a last family get together and uh, they're looking for places. And then he gets a weird email about some place in Wales and they just decide to go there. Like that's where they'll go to chill out and be away from the world and focus on their family for a couple of, for a week or something. Uh, So it's in the Welsh culture countryside, which I think is an interesting choice to specifically make it Wales. Um, I guess it's exotic enough. It's misty. It's exotic enough that the, I I mean, very famously the, the the road signs in Wales, many of them are in Welsh. As far as I know, they're also in English. So I don't know, you know, whatever, but like they, they do make a thing about being some kind of language barrier. So I don't, I don't know if the original being set in Germany was, they didn't want to set it in, in German, anywhere in Germany, you know, so that they wouldn't have to have like language, multiple language speakers. I don't know why it's set in Wales. I don't know why it's set in Wales, but it is. And that's supposed to make it scary. Yeah, I guess, I guess it's enough that Americans would be like, Ooh, Wales. That sounds scary. Was it's Um, like the midsummer movie. They set it in Sweden. That's right. And that, because I don't understand it. Busters, you know, people, there are strange. Uh, so they go to this Airbnb. It's super nice. It's way too nice for the countryside, right? It's like super modern, brutalist, you know, it's just all squares and rectangles. It really does look like an Airbnb though. Cause if you surf that website for 10 minutes, you just find these ultra modern, like wasteland, <laughs> easy construction things that they're big and beautiful and soulless. And so the, the middle of the film really is just them in this space. And things immediately start being strange. Uh, lights turning off and on when they shouldn't. And then really I guess basic the, horror movie stuff. Very basic. Like to the point that I'm like, why are we even bothering with this? Like we know this won't amount to anything. Um, why are we wasting our time? There's there's more interesting stuff you could get up to in this space. Um so there's there's obviously like a growing rift between Kevin Bacon and Amanda Seyfried. Um, he's distrustful of her. Uh, you know, he seems to sort of be overly monetary with her behavior, very conscious of her cell phone use. Well, she's like very um, young and their age difference him. is yeah. not a huge. They don't point it out. Necessarily. I don't remember. I don't think they do. I don't think anybody does. There's an insinuation that the security guard, he goes to visit her on set before they go on this trip. And there's an he insinuation suspects. that the security guards like real, like are you're together, you know, like there's a little bit of that. Like, are you her dad kind of stuff? 
Um, but it's real hand waved, you know, just kind of moved around. Um, so I guess we'll, we'll officially say we're getting into spoilers here. I don't know if this is worth a watch at this point. Um, cause it is just a spooky house movie. It's not a bad one, but it's not much more than that. And we've it, got a lot of that. There's a space. lot to choose from. I mean, this is one of those, like, if it's available and you want a movie, you can talk over. Because, <laughs> sure, like, you could, you, could talk, yeah. you could talk through this whole movie and never miss anything. I would think that's true. Yeah. It's not, doesn't require your full attention. Yeah. Uh, not by any stretch. I mean, we honestly, we've gotten a lot more Kevin Bacon in the last couple of years than we had for a while. I know he was, like, he, like, was on TV for a bit. He had a TV show or something. Whatever. Um, but he's good in this. Like Bacon is good with what he's being asked to do. Yeah. He's likable. Uh, he's, he's, just a li- a likable he's a likable, likable leading guy. He's a likable leading man. Absolutely. Um, I'm going to be super honest here and this may be a bit of a hot take. I don't like Amanda Seyfried. I've, I've seen her in many projects now. I can't necessarily put my finger on what it is about her that doesn't work for me, but I just don't enjoy her screen presence in most things. Um, I, I think I, I enjoyed her in, in one movie. And shockingly, it was Jennifer's body. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I, I really liked her in that, but I feel like she was playing. She wasn't playing the character that, Essentially, since like Les Mis, she has mm. played the the Cosette, like the the beautiful ethereal girl in trouble. Yeah, you know what? If she was a little bit younger, she would have been in Last Night in Soho. Uh. She she like that girl, and I'm struggling to remember her name too. This is so terrible. I should have prepped. Um, the one who's in all the things uh, now, uh, uh, she was the, in the, the one with the, the big the eyes, <laughs> big eyed girl. And maybe that's it. Maybe it's the big eyed waif thing that just doesn't work for me. Cause I don't really like her either. Um, big eye. I, maybe that's it. I don't know. And I'm, Anya. Again, this is Anya Taylor. An- Anya? Anya? I think it's Anya. I think it is. I did like her in the menu. She was good in that. Um, yeah, because they gave her a personality sort of like. Seyfried in Jennifer's body, she has, she's able to do it. Like, I don't think it's her. Yeah, maybe it's the part more than the I, actress. I think, yeah. I think it's people look at big eye Blondie and they're like, I just want to have you be in trouble. And I want you to, to worry. I want you to look out a window and stare at a countryside and just have a and look of concern. Look like you're on the verge of tears. At yeah. all times. Uh, and they yeah, keep I don't, putting I don't her in those movies and I just kind of hate it. And they, I, I would like it if they just let her act and do something. Sure. Because, I mean, I, I will say, I mean, she was on Big Love. She originated one of the, yeah. the characters on Big Love and was pretty much in that entire series. Maybe a few episodes she was out. I remember that. Um, and, and I did like her in that. I thought that was a very compelling character because she was like the, she was the older sibling in the polyamorous m- relationship you know, who was like, I want out of this. 
I don't want anything to do with this, right? I, I don't even want to be a part of this world. And so that was a very interesting, you know, and conflicted character. Uh, and I didn't, didn't hate her in that. Um, I don't, and I don't, again, I don't hate her in this. It's just, I don't, her character is doing very little for me, very little for me. And she kind of exits the film unceremoniously. And a lot of her story threads are kind of just dropped. Um, and, and it just, it didn't feel all that fully formed. Well, but, and her role in this kind of reminds me of that other movie we watched and did for the podcast that she was in, that it was another haunted house movie. Oh yeah. The one in like the main countryside or whatever. Yeah. That movie yeah. sucked. <laughs> that one wasn't very good either. And yeah, it the was Netflix the same. Original. She, she played the same kind of person. Wayfish, wayfish girl in danger. Yeah. And I don't know. It, so she's fine in this. Um, but this is kind of a, a middling recommend. Like I, I did not hate it. I did not loathe my experience of watching this film. And when it does verge into the weird, it, it's pretty interesting. Like there's that one shot. He, there's a shot later in the film where he's like going down the stairs and the light is swinging. And I was like, that's a really cool shot. I wish more of this movie was like that. <laughs> and it wasn't. And that was the sad part. The rest of it was just a fairly normal, like nouveau modern. That's always rough Airbnb. You when know? a movie shows you just like a, a little snatch of genius, and you're like, ah, you right. do know how to make a movie. Like, was that an? You just accident? chose not to. Did you make a mistake? <laughs> like, what happened? <laughs> um. So yeah. So we'll we're fully in spoilers now, uh, because there are a couple of big questions about the characters in this particular story that get answered earlier than I expected them to be. Um, one I think is telegraphed super early and to just kind of be like, well, yeah, okay, sure. Um, but in any case, it's, it's a middling recommend. Like I said, if you can find this on VOD or if it shows up on some streaming service for nothing, you know, sure. Check it out. Um, but I, I'm not going to say go out and, and attempt to seek it because I don't think you will be satisfied. What I will say, and I think what you'll echo is, go watch stir of echoes. If you've never seen that, that would yeah. be a better expenditure of your time. Uh, it's I, worth I spent, noting. I spent a good this, chunk of this movie thinking about how I wanted to watch stir of echoes. And uh, then same. I did. Yeah. And it was great. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like this movie is good because it reminds you that David Kep has made a good movie and you should just go watch that one. Yeah. And it also has Kevin Bacon. So yay. Yippee the win skippy, for all. Right? It's a win for everybody. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's a middling, uh, recommendation. So the, the big conflict here, the mystery surrounding Kevin Bacon, if we're fully in boy, I'm oh, sorry, that's just a really funny sentence. That is a, that is a funny <laughs> sentence. That's mystery not a surrounding sentence. Kevin Bacon. That's, that's not an experience <laughs> that a sentence that I ever thought I would say, but yet here we are, um, is that he was married previously and his wife died under somewhat mysterious circumstances. He was exonerated of those charges. She died in the bathtub after taking pills. And it wasn't his fault. I know that's the last, that's you can really get like three and then you gotta, gotta be done. Otherwise you can, otherwise I'm going to pass out. I need to do some more cardio. Uh, <laughs> but so it's sort of settled amongst amongst Amanda Seyfried and him that it's just not a big deal. They've got their relationship. They're not worried about it, uh, but the world has not forgotten. And so this is what Kevin Bacon walks around 
worrying about that he will be recognized on the street as that guy what murdered his wife um and uh you know a trial in the court of public opinion sort of thing and um so the main issue that I have with this movie is that a lot of it comes down to being this sort of like interpersonal drama between Bacon and Seyfried, right? Like their relationship on the rocks kind of thing. And both of them are pretty shitty people and their relationship seems like it kind of sucks. So for a film that seemingly wants me to be rooting for these characters to find solutions to their problems, I don't really find much in the film to make me want that to happen for those problems to be solved because, you know, bacon again is doing just fine, but he's not especially lovable. He's not especially kind. Like he's not trying like for a dude, what might have murdered his wife. He doesn't seem to be trying very hard. Mm. Right. Yeah. Like in his relationship. Like, he seems to be pretty much like, yo, I got money. Like, I'll just buy their love. And, and it is, it is apparent that he's going through rehab. I, I, that was what I took from it. And so he's journaling for his rehab. And I don't know if this is drug and alcohol. I I assume alcohol. Or just therapy or something. Just therapy, maybe. Yeah. Maybe it's just therapy to get over these issues, what have you. Um, because the conceit in the novella is that this guy is chronicling his attempts at screenwriting, right? So like the, the novella is actually told through a series of diary entries over the course of the couple of weeks that they stay at this Airbnb. So it's, this is kept trying to replicate that. Um, at least I, I presume it is. And so he's journaling regularly, uh, for therapeutic reasons and so he's obviously struggling. And so it's like, okay, that's, that's a thing to root for. That's a character trait that we want to say that's, that's good, you know, whatever. Um, but like Seyfried's pretty aggressively not nice about a lot of things, which, you know, we get our justification for later, but like their family doesn't seem all that great. And yet we're supposed to really want the family to be okay. And, and it's, Again, you know, you said up front, we're going to talk about Stir of Echoes a lot because it just, mm-hmm. it, it's going to happen. Um, in Stir of Echoes, you are so rooting for this family. Yeah, yeah, the kid totally. And, and, and Kevin Bacon and then his wife. I can't ever remember the actress's name, but I love her. Um, they are an interesting family unit and they don't, they have like marital problems and they have conflicts and clashes with each other but they're still fundamentally likable people who you want to support. Yes, absolutely. Like and, they in have Stir of Echoes, <laughs> and in Stir of Echoes, there is the conceit that this is kind of thrust upon him. Like yeah. it's after the psychic reading that he starts seeing these visions and stuff and he didn't want it. But now that he has this knowledge, he feels compelled to try and do something about it. But so I don't feel very... sorry for anyone in this movie. No, like oh. everybody, this, and, and that's, thematically appropriate given where it goes i guess that you know this is a place of judgment this is their silent hill if you will um yeah but 
but it's it's not really it's not enough to propel you forward like there's not enough investiture in these characters for who they are to make me be concerned for that act three turn where the mysteries are revealed and everything comes to light, you know, like it's just not enough. Um, So the, the big mysteries, the central mysteries are, is Amanda Seyfried messing around on Kevin Bacon? The answer is yes. yes. Uh, Which again, telegraphed very early on. And then the other big mystery that we've already discussed is did Kevin Bacon actually murder his wife? And the answer is yes. (laughs) And well, he didn't murder her. He found her in that state and elected not to save her, which again is murder. But it is a subtle distinction that I think, and again, this is all concocted by Kep. None of this is from the original novella. Not a, not a bit of it. Um, so I can only guess that that decision was made so that there could be some sympathy because it's painted that their relationship was in a decline. She was becoming vindictive. She was going to take a bunch of his money, you know, like again, it's, it's not something. And and again, I want to make sure I want to make clear that Kevin Bacon is Kevin Bacon is blameless in this, right? The scene where he, he, cause it, it, one of the thing the movie plays with is that he's convinced himself that he did not kill her, right? That he is indeed innocent. Like he has fooled himself into that belief. And part of the film is, is getting him to this emotionally raw place where he admits the truth to himself again. And Bacon does fantastic work in selling that. Like I, Bacon in his early years, the early Bacon, if you will, uh, was a very big actor, like most of his analogous handsome dudes of the late 80s, right? Most of his big roles, you know, thinking Footloose, uh, you know, etc. They were very much foundationally built upon his energy and his on-screen presence. Then we saw Kevin Bacon over the course of the 2000s with Sir of Echoes and then really, I think culminating with it was that relatively early, I think it was the early two thousands where he played the convicted child molester. Did you see that one? I think so. But in essence, he he sort of began this slow career turn where he he really legitimately uh, the woodsman was what that one was called. And uh, it was a Nicole Castle film. Very, very quiet. Um, But it was this really deep examination of this like truly psychologically flawed person and. Like one of the major struggles in that movie, if I remember correctly, was him just like, cause he's a convicted sex offender, convicted child molester. And he like still wants to live across from an elementary school kind of thing. You know, like it's, it's, it's very deep and bacon kills it. Like it's, it's a difficult movie to watch for lots of reasons, but he's great. And this, I... this character is more like that. Like it's yeah. more in this, like he really is trying to engage 
in this very schlocky kind of stupid film <laughs> with a character who has truly done some heinous shit and has not dealt with it. And I think that he does a good job. Um, I, I admit it. I, I, I've said it before and I'm a fan of his movies. I mean, he's always had like a lot of emotional depth to his characters. He was, I mean, even going back as far as stuff like she's having a baby where he plays these more complex people. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he also was in Tremors. He was. And he's so good. Which Tremors is the is greatest. Great. It's it's one of the greatest movies ever. Tremors is one of the greatest films of all time. Hands down. Um, like no, no equivocations, no like for a horror film. No, like Tremors is perfect. Tremors yeah. is a perfect script. It's the only thing that limits Tremors was its, was its budget. Like, there, and and honestly, that lack of budget made them get creative, and as a result, the films actually like got some great parts. But no, Tremors, Tremors is an, an unequivocal masterpiece. Like that movie's great, and Kevin and Bacon the, is a huge part of it. A huge part of it, and the thing is, he just brings professional energy to like every role that he's in. So he's doing so much with this movie that it doesn't deserve. <laughs> This movie doesn't really deserve all that he's trying to give it with this character because this character doesn't have much to it at all. No, no, it's 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 pretty weak. Like it's a one trick pony character like this is his only trick. It's this and he loves his daughter. That's that's it. You know, ground Um, groundbreaking stuff. Top to bottom. David Kep, Oscar winner. Uh, It's just um, it's. It's very subtle. Like this film is, it was built to be small. Like you can tell, like Kep is very aware of the interrelationship between budget and the film that you are able to produce, right? He has been in Hollywood long enough. He is intimately familiar with the production processes of a film that's going to cost $300 million and a film that's going to cost $5, right? Like what are you going to be able to pull off? And so this film is is really economical in in almost every aspect. Its locations, its 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 actors, um, because again, as popular and as awesome as Kevin Bacon is, he's not charging twenty million dollars a picture. That's not Kevin Bacon's uh, rate. Uh, like I said, this film was four million. I would bet Kevin Bacon got paid seven hundred fifty thousand of that. That would be my guess. And then hopefully, about as much to Amanda Seyfried. Although I I doubt it was. It should be, but probably not. So in any case, Bacon is doing the best he can with what this character has. And in the moments where he's asked to go deep, he does effectively and eloquently. The problem is, is that those moments are few and far between and most of them don't really come to anything. Uh, so the, the main thrust of the film is the first few days that they spend in this house. They don't get a warm welcome at the nearby town with the Welsh guy. There's like a oddly funny scene where that he like asks the guy for eggs and the guy like leaves the counter and walks to the back and gets eggs. And then he asks for milk and the guy leaves the counter and walks to the back and gets milk. And it's like supposed to be this like jokey, funny scene. But again, bacon plays it like an asshole because the guy is an asshole. And so like all the humor gets drained out of a scene. That's probably supposed to be funny that was supposed to set up a joke later when he calls him. And then he's like, Oh, he's probably walking to the back. You know, like it's just very, it's very inept in terms of setup and payoff in those small ways. Uh, 
which I wouldn't expect from someone as as experienced as Kep at this point, but who knows. So the major reveals, Amanda Seyfried is cheating on him, which the big catch is that she's got two cell phones. And he figures out that she's got two cell phones. And so she's got two cell phones. She has like the cell phone that he can see and then the cell phone that he cannot see. And so that kind of kicks things off. But a lot of the film's uh, creepiness happens late at night. Everyone's asleep. And then Bacon is having, Bacon's character, I should say, is having these like fugue state moments where he loses time. And then there is like a study or something underneath the stairs of the house. There is some cool hallway shots, like long hallway things that they play with too, but there's this strange study under the house that uh, a door appears that doesn't seem like it should be there. And then he goes through that door and into a very house of leaves esque style space. And inside the space, he sees things, he has visions, he disappears for hours. There's a scene where he like thinks that he's only he, they like are, they agreed to have sex when he came back to bed after he filled out his journal and then she falls asleep. He comes back to bed. And he's like, man, I was only gone for like five minutes and, you know, doesn't realize that he's been gone for like six hours or something. Yeah. And so the film tries to sort of like make that all work. And again, there are some good shots while he's exploring these spaces, these long stairways that lead to nowhere, you know, and, and, and what have you. But it's, it's all kind of a background element. Like it's never I don't know. It's just never really, it never really had much impact in terms of the film, even though it ostensibly is the film. Like that's what's happening. Um, I, I guess, do you want to talk about like, apparently the people in the town know what this house is. <laughs> you remember that, that little plot point. Uh, uh, so this is also sort of a, early third act reveal, I guess. And it comes, it comes from that convenience store, grocery store owner. Um, so, so what is this house? Cause remember they got the email about the availability of the Airbnb while they were like having a fight or something. And then later on, neither of them remembers who actually booked it. Both of them think the other person was the one who shared the link so that they would go to this place. But so what is this place? What is this place that they should have left? It's the house where the devil is collecting souls. And I will admit, as I was watching this, this film, that is not what I was expecting. No. Um, it, it really does try to have like this slick, cool, almost modern like we would never do anything cheesy like that and then it's like no it's definitely the devil right and it felt kind of stephen kingish in that way it right did. you know it, <laughs> but in the bad like, way like but not in the good way derogatory right? like in the needful things way where you're like oh it's, it's just it's just the devil okay all right gotcha him uh, again ah uh, that devil constantly causing problems the best so, yeah, so and, and the thing that kind of freaked me out is like everybody in the town knew that it, it, it I mean, I don't I guess maybe not everybody, but the shopkeeper knew and he's like, ah, oh, yeah, that's the devil's house up there. 
<laughs> you know, that, that's like a Looks New like England accent. Looks like you're staying accent. in the devil's house. Yeah, you've stayed in the devil's house when you showed up first and said where you were staying. I should have probably mentioned that, but I didn't. <laughs> it's like, uh, well, if you knew that, why wouldn't you be like, you probably don't want to stay there. Go find another place. But he's like, oh, well, well the devil brought you here. Don't want to interfere. Don't want to interfere with the devil's his soul. Uh, yeah, so it's it's the devil's house. See, the people go there. Not everybody, it sounds like. Some people stay there uneventfully. The devil doesn't want everybody. Yeah. Only but, some. But uh, if, if the devil invites you to his house, it's because he wants your soul. Uh, he wants yeah. you to experience the pain of this the world. This tracks with everything I know about the devil. Yeah. Which is I mean, a lot. It's a lot. I mean, <laughs> I grew up in America. We know all about it. Uh, so... And that's kind of where I was like, oh, okay, that's that's this. Okay. Um, so there is like a mysterious person. Uh, I guess they say it's the guy. It's passed off as the guy who owns the house. And I forget the name. It was like Stedman, Stenman, something. I- I'm sure it's. Stedman Q. Devilson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stetler. Stetler. That was it. Stetler. Um, yeah. Stetler Q. Devilman. The third. The fourth. Esquire. Um and and so like they have a few conversations with him and then and it's like obviously Kevin Bacon in makeup like it's there's <laughs> he walked on screen and said something he's like oh it's Kevin Bacon uh so it's himself but it's also supposed to just be the devil taking various forms to torture him uh cuz the whole point is to get him to acknowledge the murder and then to sort of release his family i guess um cuz obviously his his goal is to protect the daughter. There is a neat scene where, you know, he realizes that they shouldn't be in the house. They need to leave. So they do the whole, like, we're going to go outside and we're going to walk to town, even though it's dark and it's cold. And then of course they just get turned around and they come right back to the house and whatever. Um, you know, and again, bacon is selling that like, you know, you can tell he's, he's very concerned for the daughter and that it is a bit emotional. Um, you know, but they're they're trapped here. They can't escape. And, and and there are again some cool imagery. That's where like the poster of this has like the image of the lone guy standing in the big window uh in the house, you know, looking at them, which gets set up for later. And I don't know, like all of this stuff is is effective in its own way. And I, I think that the the setups and payoffs of the third act when you know it's revealed that he's kind of like time traveling a little bit like within the house he's seeing both the future and the past and there's all you know like everything's just kind of broken inside the house time space whatever um all that stuff's fine and in a in a, a better overall movie i think it would work but it just none of it landed for me like none of those beats was like because when they saw the guy in the window i was like well it's kevin bacon like it's yeah. just him i don't know when or why but it's just him you know, seeing himself at some point. Cause I've read house of leaves. Like, like that's <laughs> I mean, like to bring it full circle is like, I've seen this before because <laughs> the thing that this is trying to do, I've read and it's very good. And obviously like, that's what this is. Um, you know, cause all of these little puzzle box, I mean, that's what Hellraiser is puzzle boxes, torturing you to get you to acknowledge your sins and then killing you. Like that's just... what this is. Of like, course. I, I know that this isn't how it went down, but like part of me is imagining that in in like 2018, 2019, David Kep calls somebody up and he's like, I just read 
the best book. <laughs> have you ever heard? Have you heard House of, of Leaves? House of Leaves. <laughs> and then like everybody, and then the guy, the other, the line is like, uh, yeah. Of course. <laughs> have Obviously. they made a movie out of this? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> and then he just goes for, th- he just types into Google, books like House of Leaves, but cheaper. <laughs> And then this popped up, you know. Uh, yeah, it's it's just it's it's kind of like twenty years ago, if he had made this instead of Stir of Echoes, I bet it would have done okay, because it, it would have been novel. But the ideas being played with here, pretty much all of them, have either been explored fully in other films or are are so piecemeal from other films that none of this hits as being especially original. Um, and not that every film has to be original. I, I watch a lot of derivative media, like, and I enjoy it. Like it's fun, but that derivative media in order to leave a mark past its initial sort of consumption so that you don't rewatch half the film six months later and go like, have I seen this? Have I ever I, seen this movie? Wow, this yeah, is weird. Like, um, it needs to to put its own stamp on it. And while, again, I think everybody involved in this project, uh, you know, Kep included, is is really trying. I just don't think there's enough here to to separate it from a very crowded pack of films trying to do similar things. And it doesn't um, help that it's it's a part of the Blumhouse empire. Yeah. Which at this point has like a certain stink. Not stink because like i enjoy the movies but i you could strip that intro off the front of it and i would know that this sure. is a blumhouse production. oh totally i would know yeah because all has... of the movies have the look the feel the stench <laughs> and it's starting to bother me because i'm like you've got to do something different with the look of your movies with the sure the yeah. production quality like i'm i'm behind you with the budget thing make cheaper movies Totally. Cheaper, but, shorter movies. This is a 90-minute movie. 90 minutes yeah, an hour. Thank God. Love that. Yeah. But I shouldn't be able to tell who is producing a movie just by the way right. it looks. That From just seems jump. weird. Yeah. It's it's definitely... I mean, if anything, it's, it's the Marvel problem. You know? It's whenever you sort of centralize production on this scale to where you know you're dropping filmmakers into these pre-existing production pipelines this is just what happens like you just get samey stuff you know you'll get you you will get the occasional um jordan peele who comes in and it just has such an incredible sense of style that they'll push outside that box and be given the budget to push outside that box that's the other yeah. thing um you know lay Wannell with the invisible man you know again he was able to do some cool things I haven't seen Megan yet, but apparently it does some goofy things. It looks too goofy for me. Megan looks just, yeah. it looks too goofy, but I'll, I'm sure I'll check it out at some point. Um, but yeah, like, a, you know, Derrickson has avoided this because he's, although Derrickson came up out of this indie horror world, I think he's, he's experienced enough now that he can, even within the constrained budgets of the Bloomhouse production model, he brings his own people and expertise into that. And so, you know, you get something like the black phone, which looks very unique. Um, but yeah, like these, yeah, that was a good movie. 
God, such a fucking That's movie. so good. Um, yeah, we'll never talk about it on this podcast because it's too good. <laughs> um, but, it, oh, man, Black Phone's great. If you haven't seen Black Phone, go watch Black Phone. Man, man that, was, burner, that, that was good. Great script, solid execution. And, just and, really and real fucking scary. Yeah. Like, talk about a scary movie. That was a scary movie. The, you know, again. Ethan Hawk. Oh, man, Ethan Hawk. Have you seen, I've, this has been going around social media circles, but he's he, like, gave this long filmed talk on creativity have you seen any of that stuff dude when did when did ethan hawk become like the philosopher of our i mean like my god he was in that he was in that (laughs) hamlet movie that was real weird oh he was i mean he is an actor he is he is an actor's actor uh you know like to to consider that dead poet society was like where he started, I guess we shouldn't be surprised because that is a beautiful and poetic film that is all about the nature of creativity in the human soul, right? Like that, so I get it, like that that's this foundational moment in his life. But yeah, it, it, I've really enjoyed uh, a lot of Ethan Hawke's output. But anyway, so I, I too, I feel like this is just a very sort of bog standard Bloomhouse product um, that you know, Kep is not incapable. Like this is a fine, I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with this film. It's just the reveals are telegraphed a little too hard. The interesting elements, i.e. the devil house and it's changing landscape and the, the descent into madness within is, is either production budget limited, which I think is probably an issue, but it's just not explored. And as a result, I think the film leaves a lot of dramatic and sort of horror weight just on the table. Like it just doesn't do anything with it. Um, It gets a little bit better when he finally does start trying because eventually once he realizes that the house is wrong, they're like outside looking in the window and they realize that it's just like too long. Like there's not enough space outside to accommodate the inside. And so they start measuring stuff, which was a big part of the novella. Like in the novella, he like starts measuring things and he starts trying to make right angles on pieces of paper with like a protractor and it come and it always comes off like two degrees off, like, and he can't fix it, you know? So it's like that, that's cool. Like that's more interesting. And once the film gets to that phase, it gets a little bit of injection of life, but we're like sprinting to the end by the time we get to that point. And yeah. it, it just doesn't really land. Um, so the ending is, is poignant enough. Uh, he's been trying to get a hold of his, you know, soon to be ex-wife due to her affair. And she finally shows back up at the house the next day to pick up the daughter. He hands her off and says, you know, this is where I belong. I I can't leave. This is, this is my place now. And, um, okay. I I mean, I guess you could, I guess you could take that approach. Um, I mean, he admits to killing the wife, which again, if Amanda Seyfried's character hadn't also been kind of terrible, she seems like, Oh my God, like you did it. And he's like, yeah, I did it. But then it seems like the next logical thing for them would be like, well, I'm kind of okay with it. You know, like, (laughs) you know, like why, why would she care? Like she was lied to, of course, but I mean, they're divorcing now. Okay. So you killed your, your ex-wife. You got away with it. So, you know, Thanks. 
I, I it just it didn't seem like there was enough reaction there to warrant the reveal. And I didn't really expect based on the characters that I'd been seeing the reaction that she gave, even though that's yeah. the standard reaction that you would give, you know, and, it, and it's not to justify this guy killing his wife. Like I'm, I'm not trying to be like, well, I just killed his wife. <laughs> We're not justifying murder. I'm again. no, I'm not like, even though it is Kevin Bacon, I'd be like, it's okay. Kevin Bacon, <laughs> you can do it. <laughs> you were at footloose. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's just it's it's this weird kind of exchange she hands off the kid and then it ends but then perhaps the the worst choice and the choice that i i believe came directly from bloom is that so all of that concludes she drives away with the kid kevin bacon goes back inside to die or whatever i guess <laughs> and then we cut to a laptop screen and like an Airbnb listing and it switches from occupied to available. Uh, I guess his sequel bait. Yeah. Guess, which is definitely a bloom out. I mean, that's the Bagul problem, right? Like <laughs> that's the face popping out at the end to be like, I'm not dead. Right. Like I'm that's still here. whose house. It should have been. Oh man, wouldn't that have been a great crossover? The Bloom Cinematic Universe. Um, (laughs) uh, Yeah, like it's, it just felt like the, that was the point where I'd been watching and I've been like, okay, you know, this is Kep. He's, he's, you know, back in his like indie filmmaker days. He's, he's playing fast and loose. But that scene, I was like, oh, oh, David. Oh, they made you do this, didn't they? And you just capitulated. Even though this is ridiculous. Like, this is like, patently ridiculous. Oh, it only took a half an hour to film. We might as well just do it. It's your, the Devil House is open for open. Why for didn't visitors. they call the movie Devil House? I mean, you could have. I mean, who cares? Like, the original title has no meaning here other than, okay, well, I guess we did skip that part. In his journals, the way we know that he's losing time and time travel and whatever is it somebody writes in it in his handwriting and he can't piece it together um, <laughs> that it's uh that you should have left right that the window for them leaving or for him leaving had closed, and now he's trapped, uh, which again does not appear to be the case. It appears that he could have left after that, but maybe not maybe they would have just kept circling the property until they came back. who knows. Uh, but yeah, it's just, it's all very kind of clunky. And that ending, it drops a real bad taste in my mouth. I was like, oh, this isn't unfriended. What are we doing? Right? Like, what are, what are we doing here? This, no, don't put this little tag on the end. Like, oh, we'll be back for, you should have left too. Devil House revisited. I insisted. You know, <laughs> it's like, no, you can't. But that's, that's what you do for the 12 year olds who snuck in. Like that's cause that's the, that's the last little spook in my spook film, you know? And it's like, man, that was where I was like, dude, you just, he, I mean, Kep's had a success. I mean, Mordecai was a huge flop, like, oh my God flop, but he'd had a string of just like mediocre box office returns for his directing projects for a while. And, you know, Jason Bloom has had some success in, you know, M night Shyamalan people like, oh, I've- he made glass. Mm-mm. Yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. sorry. It's fine. It brought I up definitely, glass. 
I definitely wanted to see the hero of those films die in a puddle. That was that was a great choice. Sorry, spoilers. Um, eh, that's the last movie that Bruce Willis was cognizant enough to at least try. So I, I'll always like it for that. Um, but I mean, like he had had some success in allowing a filmmaker who had lost their luster for the traditional Hollywood studio system to come in and, you know, do a thing for le- very little money and like bang it out of the park, right? Just be like, bam, nailed it. Um, and so I could see that being part of this here, but then I, I don't think Kep nailed it. And again, as much as people are trying and people are really trying in this movie, this tiny little film, uh, it just doesn't, doesn't work. And it made me think of house of leaves, which made me happy because I do like house of leaves a lot. I had, I definitely was the dude who went the house of leaves track. I did not go the infinite jest track. Same. And given, and given what a, unfortunate piece of shit um that guy has turned out to be um as much as i i've liked some of the works of david foster wallace uh i'm kind of okay with it. i'll go with mark c danielewski he's yeah. I, I follow him on social media he's a nice guy i Lovely i would dude. rather be scared than depressed any old day of the week it's definitely <laughs> true and, and i mean in it and for people playing tennis uh, I don't really yeah know. Anyway, so, uh, I mean, I guess we've sort of spent more time bagging on Jason Bloom this episode than <laughs> normal, uh, but, but we do enjoy quite a bit of his content on this bad movie podcast. Uh, but this one, yeah, it doesn't doesn't really land. I, I don't know. It did not do it for me, it uh, felt- even though it was touching upon a lot of things that I generally do enjoy in film. Well, that's the thing. It was too derivative. It um... Yeah, that's a good way to put it. To, to the point that it it sort of becomes nothing. It's just this cloud of things that you like from other media, from, <laughs> from books, from movies, from TV shows that you saw. Um, even even the casting of someone like Kevin Bacon is like, well, you liked him in that other movie. You did. You love Kevin Bacon. You'll watch him. And, and to an extent, that's true. That's, that is... That kept me in my chair. I yeah, watched. I mean, and that's another part of the Bloom model: is you bring in a, a familiar face, a big time face. It's that and you guy put you them like. On the poster, you know, and it is that it... guy I like. Damn it! It is. Dang it! Watched another <gasps> movie. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It, like I said, there have been times when I think that formula works well. Um, uh, I know he was a producer on the Insidious series, at least. To a certain point. Oh, um, oh I know. Right? I love That's good movies. trash. Uh, I don't think he did the originals. I think it's just the sequels that he was involved in, but I can't remember. Um, but honestly, I've I've liked I like all the Insidious movies. They're all they're all good. Um, I am excited about the new one. Me too. <laughs> Patrick Wilson directed it. Ah. Like he's direct like we've gone full circle. He's directing himself in trash now. It's so Love cool. It. Uh, yeah, I, I really do want to uh, to see that one. I don't know if I will go to the theater to see it. I, I just don't know if I can justify that expense. But I am excited to watch it at some point. Like, yes, bring, bring me to the red door, Insidious 4 or 5, whatever so it is. I don't so even remember. Uh, yeah, but, again, but that's... 
those are the movies that this podcast exists to to bring to light in case people haven't seen them. Whereas, unfortunately, you should have left. It, it's just not. Like, this it's is like not, the worst case scenario. <laughs> yeah, it's like all of the elements are here. Like literally everything you need to have a really solid, you know, mid to high grade horror experience or or supernatural thriller experience, whatever you want to call it. Um, all of it's here, but it does not land. And despite the efforts of everyone involved, doesn't work. Um, and, you know, it, whereas, you know, we'll always look back on Insidious, you know, one, two, three, four, and potentially five. Uh, as I think it is five. It, I think it is the last one. key was the one in 2018. I'm telling right. you, I love these movies. You can't That's, get it off. Yeah, last key and last key was four. I always forget yeah. if it's four or three, but yeah, it was four. Um, so yeah, this is the fifth one. But like those movies revel in what they are and they know what they are and they lean into it and they love it. And whereas this one really, you know, David Kep is like he's like pro old school Hollywood filmmaker. And I just don't think he can turn that off yeah. and, and, and just sort of gleefully go about his business making a sort of middling horror film. And, and I think if he had, it would have been a very different experience. Um, but yeah, so I, I guess really that's, I, I don't know if I have anything else to say, because what I want to say is just, if you listen to this podcast and you go like, oh, well, that still sounds kind of interesting. Just go find Stir of Echoes. Because I'm going to bet you haven't watched Stir of Echoes. I'm going to bet most people listening to this podcast probably don't even know Stir of Echoes exists because it is not one of the films from 99, even though 99 was the year of the best films ever. It's not generally one of the ones that makes its way out of it, right? Like, it's not one that I hear people talk about a lot, even though it, it was really a pretty solid movie from that, from that year. Um, so I would say go watch that. And then if you enjoy that, if you like that mix and you just want a little bit more of that sweet, sweet bacon, uh, then, then come check this out too. Cause it's not bad. Like I said, it's just and, very you know, if, mediocre. It'll, I think it, it almost sweetens something like, um, stir of echoes to watch this and be like, wow, that movie was really good. <laughs> to go back yeah. and rewatch that movie again exactly yeah just go check it out again um yeah even if you have seen it stir of echoes is, is i i feel safe in saying now that stir of echoes is the best thing that david kep has ever directed definitely not the best thing he's written but in terms of what he has chosen to direct stir of echoes is his best project by far um and I don't know how many more directorial efforts we will get out of David Kep at this point. It seems like he is a uh, much more successful screenwriter than he is director at this point. Um, but I, I think, you know, Stir of Echoes is the one to, to focus on. Uh, and then, you know, if you're really just looking to have fun, just dig into that early 2000s Kevin Bacon filmography because there is some really, there's some really good stuff there. It's a rich not, history. Yeah, it's it's not, they're not fun projects like they're that's from his like heavily dramatic period but i, I yeah think like he was in lot. mystic river you know like yes. forget stuff like that yeah and he's excellent in mystic river like because we think footloose stupid but good. he's a great actor i mean even that uh brief supporting role that he had in uh oliver stone's jfk where he's the yeah the prisoner man fantastic 
like the 90s he really fought to to reestablish who he was like he was fighting hard to get out of to get out of that heart that film heartthrob which he never really occupied comfortably like footloose put him there whether he wanted to be there or not but then if you look at all of his choices after that you know she's having a baby included which was by far one of john hughes most people did not like that movie because it wasn't funny it was not jokey john hughes it was legit serious oh young people are fucked (laughs) like movies people coming to terms with things that's right and talking about them and not doing well with them you know like he really fought to get out of that um i mean dude was in apollo 13 i mean he just he was in he was in a movie that we are going to do on here very soon paul verhoven's nigh forgotten hollow man because uh, uh yeah. i've never forgotten it no it is an impossible film to forget there are scenes in that movie that will remain with me forever um, whether i like it or not yes no and, and I mostly didn't, i don't i didn't want them but here they are um but yeah like uh again i'll, I'll throw the woodsman out there just because it is it, it is a brutal film to watch but it is it is kind of gorgeous in its brutality um and and I remember at the time people being like Kevin Bacon should not have taken this role, um, because it was so it was so far from what even at that time when he was attempting to establish himself as a dramatic actor, it was so far down the line. Um, he ended up doing very well with it. He won several awards, if I remember correctly, Independent Spirit Award maybe. Um, I don't know. But he, in any case, it's it, it's a solid flick, uh, difficult watch, but a good one. Um, but yeah, so uh, I think we can wrap up by by recommending not this film but Stir of Echoes, and then this is a a chaser for Stir of Echoes if you are so inclined, perhaps. Uh, and then I guess the other thing we're recommending is House of Leaves. <laughs> go, go read House of Leaves. Um, if there's any way you've managed to avoid it until now yeah like if you went through college and nobody shoved a copy of that book in your hand in a sophomore literature class uh i guess that's good good for you uh but uh it it is you know at this point it's it's one of those texts that will be or will continue to be sort of foundational to at least some aspects of storytelling and like Uh, we joke on it but at the same time it it's one of those books that's easy to joke on because mm-hmm. it's so important. Totally. Um, yeah, it's just crazy important. And it had, I would say, maybe an even greater effect on on movies and games than we're even willing to give it credit at this point. Sure. Um, especially video games. I feel like that game really, or that book really changed horror games. Um, oh, uh, undoubtedly. Yes. So, yeah, it is. it is a great book. Yeah. But it is, it's also easy to make fun of it, too. It and is. make fun of English majors, because they're an easy target. I mean, <laughs> yeah. we're an easy target. That's I shouldn't right. exclude myself. <laughs> N- nor, my, nor myself. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of those books that, uh, again, has, has so embedded itself within the particular circles that it's inescapable in some way. Um, you know, like we, we were talking before the podcast started, you know, we're, we're both very big fans of the, the remedy 
style of game uh, with with our, our our beautiful tall Finnish man Sam Lake at the helm, <laughs> and and Sam His Lake fabulous hair. Oh God, I I don't know what I'd do for hair like that. I really <laughs> don't. I, it's it's bad. It's it would be bad what I would do for hair like Sam Lake's. Um, but you know, those games draw heavily upon many things but one he of them is house of absolutely house of he love house he of has Leaves. that's he has the one a, thing i know about that dude for a fact he that book yeah. changed his life yeah uh <laughs> i i can see a well-worn heavily marked up <laughs> copy of house of leaves uh exists somewhere on sam lake's bookshelf uh if not right next to his desk because uh, it's it's just sort of embedded, especially when you look at the the you know the Alan Wake projects, um, which are are stories of people telling stories and being lost in those stories, and the stories coming to life and taking over their lives. Like that's just straight up House of Leaves, man. Yeah. Like it's just it's just what if House of Leaves but Stephen King, right? Like, that's <laughs> that's that's the remedy games uh, at this point, and I'm here for it, man. Alan Wake Two looks like freaking amazing. Um, uh, control, of course. I mean, geez. Yeah. Anyway, uh, side bigger on the inside, but... that kind of logic. Oh my God. Yes, absolutely. Like I was, I, I just got a new graphics card and I was playing control on my computer yesterday because it actually doesn't run like trash now. And, uh, you know, you clear the control points in there and like the whole space like shifts and changes and all the, you know, everything. Cause that's what the oldest house in the game is, is, is a space that is too big for its space. Right. That's the whole point. Yeah. So uh, super cool. Excellent stuff. And and again, I, I think should be influential. And and I hope more filmmakers at some point attempt to sort of do more with that because they're the film technology to make those things a reality does exist now. Um, you know, things like Inception is as cliched as even those things have become have shown us that you can you can reshape the world in real time and you can sort of press in on the mind and show us things that shouldn't exist in nature and, and sort of create those effects. But it does take budget and it does take a, a level of commitment and skill that, you know, I don't think Kep had available to him for this project. So he's not like a visionary. No, he's a good, I, I, he's a good director and he's, he's a good, a good director and a good writer, right? Like there's a reason why Kep's best work has been expressed via Spielberg. Right. <laughs> it's because Kep is a very good writer, but Steven you need Spielberg. someone like Spielberg to put that on screen. And I mean, I know we're re- we're probably rapidly approaching a time period where we're not going to be getting Spielberg anymore. I don't see him ever stopping making movies, but I mean, dude's in his seventies now. He's he's gonna slow down. It's just gonna happen. That, I thought about that the other day because I saw Indiana Jones, <laughs> and it was a not Spielberg Indiana Jones, and like, well, it wasn't bad. Mm. Oh, I love Steven Spielberg so much. Again, dude, they're I the Red Letter Media guys were talking about it in their Dial of Destiny, and we don't need to get into a huge Dial of Destiny thing here. We're, we're going to do a summer movie recap, and we'll I'm do sure that we'll next week. about <laughs> talk about Dial of Destiny next week. Um, but I agreed with their sentiment, and I even expressed this to a few other people before I, I watched their video that Crystal Skull is great well not great it's very good up until the monkeys 
swing, which I don't even hate that scene like some people do. It's fine. It's a it's a Captain Blood swashbuckler. Most of the movie is fine. Most of the movie's great. It's good. It's a good Indiana Jones movie. And then it just goes totally off the rails at the end. Yeah. Whereas Dial of Destiny is a okay sort of fine Indiana Jones movie and then its last third is like woohoo it's great yeah where it finally you know? started having fun it's like if you could take the first two thirds of Crystal Skull and then somehow mash it together with the third of Dial of Destiny I think you'd have a, a at least Last Crusade level Indiana Jones movie there I mean you if know? you could just take Dial of Destiny and just have Steven Spielberg direct it then I think it probably would have been great. <laughs> yeah, probably would have been pretty good. I mean, I am, I am, yeah, I'm one of those people, like, I just, I think about his movies, and they're perfect. They're perfect. And it's really yeah. hard for me to watch things that make me want to watch Steven Spielberg movies, because, like, I instantly <laughs> fall out of love with them, because I'm like, I could be watching Last Crusade right now. It's true. I mean, there's just, and we've talked about it before, and, and it's not a hot take to say Steven Spielberg is a great no. director. But He's there the are best. things there's things that Steven Spielberg does and just makes them seem effortless. Yeah. That other directors spend their whole careers trying to figure out how to do. Yeah. One of them is the chase scene. Steven Spielberg yeah. puts together worst. He puts together worse chase scenes for animated films like Tintin than than people put together for like I would I would watch the downhill motorcycle tank chase in Tintin four times in a row rather than watch Fast and Furious Six. Yeah, <laughs> like any I'd rather day than any of, of the, the Fast week, and Furious movies. Any day of the week, because there's more heart and emotion and storytelling in that chase scene in that stupid little animated movie. He made a scene of, of three dudes talking on a boat. One of the most engaging, enthralling moments in movie history. It's just yeah. it's just three dudes talking on a boat. Nothing nothing happens. Nothing fancy. Yeah, they're just talking. And it's riveting. How do you do that? You're Steven Spielberg. That's how. Yep. How did we start talking about Steven Spielberg? It all comes <laughs> back to Spielberg, man. Every time. Uh, but anyway, so you should leave, uh, or you should have left again. <laughs> Whatever the even, fuck this book is I called. can't even remember the title. It's not a good sign. Uh, you should have left a very, a, a solid little Blumhouse indie horror suspense thriller thing. Uh, that w- is shown up by a previous work of the same director and actor called Stir of Echoes, which is what you should go watch instead of this. And if you do watch Stir of Echoes and enjoy it, you can reach out to us and find <laughs> us online at various social medias. Uh, I did set up a Threads account uh, the other day to give it a shot, which I'm sure just made Mark Zuckerberg just sploosh all over himself. Uh it's pretty good, and I'm certainly liking it better than Twitter because Twitter sucks. But if you want to get a hold of me on Twitter, I'm still there for the time being, at T Baskin. I don't know what my thread's name is going to be yet. Right now, it's just the same as my Instagram, which I don't generally do a lot on. So 
Uh, we'll find something. But T Basket on Twitter for now. Where can they find you to talk about Stir of Echoes if they want to? Um, I tweet a lot about Kevin Bacon and Steven Spielberg, apparently. Mm-hmm. On my Twitter account, I'm still on Twitter at Baskinator. Uh, I don't have threads, but I do have Instagram, same name. I even have a Blue Sky account, and I'm the Baskinator. I don't I'm have any that yet, but I will... I will set that up. Can't do threads because of GDPR. Uh, That's right. Because I live in Europe. You're a European now. (laughs) You've got those European problems. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, so uh, you can get us together at F Peace Theater on Twitter as well. And you can email us at failurepeace at gmail.com. So sorry for the long time away, but we've enjoyed ourselves. Had some good vacation in time, some family time, some partner time. Uh, all that good stuff that you need to you know, be healthy and happy and emotionally sound in the world. Uh, but we're back and we'll be back to a semi-regular recording schedule. I know you've got another trip planned coming up because, again, you're a European now. So you get vacation Lots and of vacation. Uh, you know, time to go do shit that you want to do, which is awesome. Uh, but uh, we will be back to a semi-recording, uh, regular recording schedule. And hopefully next week we're going to do uh, one of our summer catch-ups just kind of talk about some of the things we've seen old and new uh some of the uh dial of destiny i'm sure will work its way into next week's conversation it's gonna dominate um, the conversation <laughs> you know talk it. about it a lot uh i've got thoughts on uh some other films that have come out like of the flash and uh elemental and some of those other big blockbuster releases of the year so uh, i'm sure those will come up too but we look forward to bringing you some engaging internet-based content uh, for the future. And uh, we'll be back and we'll see you then. Bye bye.